Hello, this is Mike Zenko, and welcome to another podcast. Today, I'm very lucky to be joined uh, by Dr. Stephen Weber and Betsy Cooper of the UC Berkeley Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity. The acronym is CLTC. Professor Weber is faculty director of CLTC and a professor at UC Berkeley School of Information. You may know him if you listen to this podcast for his scholarship in political science, IR, and international political economy. Uh, one of my favorite books of his to read wrote with the great Bridging the Gap scholar Bruce Gentleson called The End of Arrogance, America in the Global Competition of Ideas with Harvard University Press. Very relevant for understanding strategic great power competition today. And also Dr. Betsy Cooper, who is the executive director of the Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity, Yale Law School, PhD in politics from Oxford, formerly was senior legal and policy advisor at DHS. You can follow the work of the Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity on Twitter at CLTC Berkeley. That's at CLTC Berkeley, or just Google that and you will find they come up the very first thing. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're thrilled to be here. Thanks for the chance to talk to you. Absolutely. And Tell me first about why CLTC? Why take a longer term perspective when cyber is in our face every day in the news all the time? What's the advantage? Well, so we think that, you know, absolutely cybersecurity, the day to day is important. You know, yesterday's vulnerability, today's hack in the news. We need to be thinking about these things. But if we don't begin preparing for how the future of cybersecurity will look, if we don't understand the technological changes, the political changes, the societal changes, economic changes, and what that will mean for the future of cybersecurity, we'll always be behind the curve. And so we want to do work to try to prevent that. And talk a little bit about how CLTC is being structured and the sort of research agenda and its programmatic activities to do that. Sure, so we have basically three main streams of activity, research, education, and engagement. On the research side, we fund uh, research projects. We funded about a million dollars last year and intend to fund even more this year of projects looking at the future of cybersecurity, uh, whether it be machine learning and artificial intelligence or the proliferation of sensors or the policy environment and how that might change. Um, on the education side, we just announced a few days ago that we'll be launching in January 2018 a master's degree in cybersecurity that's in conjunction with the School of Information and the College of Engineering at Berkeley. Very exciting times for CLTC to really put together an interdisciplinary program, an online master's degree, but a real Berkeley degree, not a Berkeley star right, degree. Right. That will enable us to really train up the next generation of cybersecurity professionals looking not just at the technical skills, although that's you know the core of the program, but also at the policy and management side. And then finally, on the engagement front, we're constantly working with policymakers, with companies, with the media to really get out the message about why the future of cybersecurity is so important. We don't want to be an ivory tower institution on the Hill. We right. want to be part of that. But we also want to engage more actively with the communities and participants in the cybersecurity space to really bring about uh, the types of change we think is important. And one of the ways you've done that initially is through this excellent uh, scenario paper that you released in April called Cybersecurity Futures 2020. I invite everyone to take a look at it. Uh, in this, you did scenarios to think through five different alternative and distinct futures. First, talk about why scenarios for thinking about the future. Why not? We have people doing predictive markets and forecasting. Mm -hmm. What is the value added of scenarios? Well, I think that um, you know we, we, we wanted to do two things when we started this program. 
One was um, we felt that we really wanted to expand the operating definition of cybersecurity to get people thinking about things that go beyond, let's say, the security of computer networks and devices. Mm -hmm. So from our perspective, sitting in a kind of an interdisciplinary program, cybersecurity, the word cyber, is nobody uses that word anymore, really. Nobody in the field uses it. Yeah, nobody uses it anymore. Um, We think of it as um, broadly encompassing all the interesting security issues that start to emerge when human beings interact with digital devices and networks. And when you sort of think about it that way, you think about a much broader remit. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's actually one important move we wanted to make and the the scenarios were um, partly intended to broaden that remit. The second thing we wanted to do was to get people, as Betsy said, thinking out ahead of the curve. With the idea being if we can point people to a set of possible futures 2020 is actually not that far away. And for a scenario project, it's actually really, really close. Um, The idea was not so much to try to foresee what the future would bring. It's not predictive. Like predictive markets. And not so much to try to um, arbitrage against those predictions, but instead um, to paint a really broad set of possibilities. And this is what scenarios are really good at. Mm -hmm. Scenarios are not predictions. Scenarios, I say that again and again and again to everybody who's willing to listen. In 2020, though, people will take your paper, and if it doesn't predict one of the outcomes. Exactly. Um, what, what's even worse is if people, if it does predict one of right. the outcomes, people will say we predicted it. That's not the point. Right. The point is to see that landscape of possibilities and ask yourself, what will we need to know or what tools will we need to have or what kinds of questions will we wish researchers had been working on now to better prepare us for a world which has some of these elements in Mm -hmm. it. Um, And so the point of the scenario is really, more than anything else, is to identify what are the kinds of new problems that appear in worlds like that and what do we need to do now so we're not gonna be surprised by them in exactly the same way. And talk about one or two of the scenarios that you found most interesting and counterintuitive maybe. Yeah, so one of the scenarios we developed, we're gonna talk about a little bit uh, later today, is a scenario about a market crash in data intensive Mm -hmm. businesses. So just look around us um, at some of the most successful Um, digital businesses of today and ask yourself just kind of casually what does their market valuation represent it clearly doesn't represent the value of the services they provide per se it represents the value of the data they collect as they are providing those services and you and I both know having lived through a couple of market crashes that um, those kinds of castles in the air one day just come crash they can come crash right somebody decides actually you know what machine learning is not going to produce the kind of commercial value that people today think it will or that data set is not as valuable as you believe it was because some new law is made restricting what you can do with it and so our point here is not to say that these valuations will crash. Mm-hmm. Our point is to say, if that were to happen, what would that look like? Mm-hmm. And so we try to imagine a world in which um, the valuations of a business like Twitter, say, falls by 90%. Well, one of the things that we all learned, having lived through a dot-com bust and then a housing market bust, is that one of the most important things to do in a setting like that is to try to find recoverable assets that you can right. sell to raise cash. So what do these businesses have? Well, you know, in 2000, they had Aeron chairs, but Aeron chairs aren't that sexy anymore. So what they have today are data sets. So what we're trying to do is sort of imagine what would the world look like where all those data sets that are today the target of criminals trying to steal them, tomorrow might be available essentially on distressed asset markets to buy Mm -hmm. for 10 cents on the dollar or a cent on the dollar. 
it's a pretty interesting shift. Right. Um, we spent a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of technology trying to protect these things from being stolen. Now you can buy them for cheap. And as I think Betsy put it in, in one conversation, nobody steals a car from a salvage yard. Right. You go buy it. Right. And then you combine it with other pieces. You make things. So like we, we, we ought to try, tell that story and try to explore how does that change the game for the criminals as well as the defenders? What would you do if you're a criminal in that world? What would you do if you're in a government in that world? One of the um, interesting possibilities we played around with is would a government, the United States government, have to develop almost something like a troubled asset relief program to take those huh. data assets, pull them out of the distressed asset market on the theory that, well, you know, the data is still valuable. It's just been, it's sort of like not insolvent, but illiquid, I guess. Right. right? Mm -hmm. And um, kind of hold those assets in escrow until markets stabilize. What does that look like? How would you feel if the data that is currently sitting in your Facebook account were being held by a troubled data relief program that belonged to the US government and then eventually sold back out into the market? What does that like? Right. What, what does right. that imply? Right. So those are the kinds of questions we're trying to um, drive. Again, not because we think these things are gonna happen, right. but because when you ask those questions, you, um, you start to say, what would I need to have in place to actually manage that kind of problem were it to emerge. Well, then let me talk about the next step from scenarios, which is strategic planning. And right. people often mistake strategic planning for scenarios, but we know from Gresham's law right. that daily routine drives out strategic planning. It certainly does everywhere in government. I used to work in policy planning in the State yeah. Department. There's nobody there who does policy planning. Um, how are you trying to make sure there's connective tissue between the yeah. scenarios and somebody doing something with that? So look, I mean, the, the um, I, I, I've struggled with this in the private sector for years. Uh, it's, um, it's very, very interesting for people to see potential futures. It's very, very hard to convince others in the organization that they actually need to plan right. for them. Um, and uh, if you don't do that, what you get are the, is the attention of people who have time but not decision power. Right. Um, and, and that's all fun and interesting, but it's not actually effective in the world. So um, I found over time that the best way to do that is to create really compelling narratives for right. people that actually have attached to them things you can do. Um, when those narratives, and, and this is why we tell the scenarios in the report, as you've seen, as stories, right. not as dry analytic um, kind of uh, models. Um, that's why we include advertisements or news stories and fictions, fictions yeah. from the future that say um, that help people to say, I, I, I can see the possibility for a world like that and then create that kind of anxiety and tension and then solve it by saying, here's the three things you would need to have in place. Right. What can we do now to start to build those muscles or sometimes build those institutions or sometimes might be invest in those technologies so that we will not be the last people to see them coming. Right, right. One of the things that fascinates me is that, and you talk about the cyber being the domain, but so much of what we think about as security it doesn't just exist in this digital or cyber sphere, it exists in the private sector. Absolutely right. 96% of all critical infrastructure in the United States is owned by private sector actors. And so what sort of incentives do you envision setting up? Because some industries protect themselves because of insurance requirements or right. industry best practices. Some require specific harsh federal regulations. Uh, what, what's the role for, like how are you looping in industry now because they're the drivers for so much of this? That's a really important question and something we've thought about a lot. Um, on the actual interaction level, we have a corporate membership program and also an external advisory group. And both of those 
are designed particularly to give us the opportunity to understand what is important in the private sector so we're not missing ongoing technological trends or interests that companies are facing mm -hmm. and also gives them the chance to reflect upon the sorts of research and engagement activities that we're doing so that we're not behind that ivory you know sort of right. curtain um, <laughs> in a sense uh, so that they can really understand uh, the types of work that we're doing. We're also setting our research priorities specifically to deal with these types of questions. So one of the areas that we've laid out as a research priority for this ongoing request for proposals is cyber risk, cyber insurance and incentives. So we want to understand huge, how those yeah. incentives need to be structured and whether it's through cyber insurance or through government institutions or how can we get people to face those incentives. Right. Another research area is new regulatory regimes for cybersecurity. So how should governments be structured? How should the private sector be structured? And how should they engage through regulatory regimes? So we're just starting to ask those questions, but we definitely recognize the problem space, which is precisely to begin to think about incentives and where our you know sort of market problems can be solved uh, in conjunction with academic institutions. Well, I had a quick thought to you know for 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 us um, when the president was out in Silicon Valley last January to um, talk with um, uh, the Valley about the encryption debate, mm -hmm. it was really quite striking for those of us who were there just how wide the gulf is between oh, yeah. the West. Now I don't want to equate West Coast East Coast with private sector government. It's, that's not accurate, um, right. although sometimes there's a, a, a kind of view that there are really kind of different views. Um, that that gulf is really, really large, and it operates in both directions. It's not just that government right. doesn't understand right. private sector incentives. It's also that the private sector really doesn't understand how the government is thinking about many of these problems. And so we sort of think about this. We, we, we need to circulate ideas. Right. And so it's part of the reason why we're flying back and forth to the East Coast. It's part of the reason why we're trying to build some um, small institutions uh, of a technocratic nature that would take government um, operators, put them in close contact with private sector operators, work on tough government problems together, probably do it on the West Coast. Um, we believe in brain circulation and people circulation. Right. And this, th these com two communities, they know what they need to get closer but they don't really have a bridge that makes it easy. Well, and the bridges that have been tried, like the hack the Pentagon or setting up digital yeah. centers of excellence, which are sort of small one-offs in Boston exactly. or the Valley. But the, the bigger gap that I've noticed in, in some of my research is I talk to a lot of proficient good hackers yeah. and good coders, and they don't care about policy. They want to break things and yeah. demonstrate that something that can't be broken into was corrupted. Right. And, and, and so getting them getting their incentive structure in mind seems to be almost as important as getting the private sector because that's ultimately the human capital, that's the human talent. It's a cultural question, in right. part. Um, you know, today we're here in suits, but normally you'd see us yeah. in jeans, maybe <laughs> not a hoodie, but probably close. Um, and the way, and it goes beyond that, it's the way that people engage with each other. There's formality in New York and DC, doesn't exist in Silicon Valley. And so when you get everyone together for a happy hour, it's not an easy mix. Right. And we think that that's exactly why the people circulation angle is so important because you only begin to build those networks once you actually engage more than once every so often in a really formal setting. And we're going to see that in a very concrete manner, I think. You know, hopefully a new administration will look at the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which is probably the most important law that Absolutely. affects what you were talking about, and decide that it's time to revise that law. Now, if that kind of revision process um, sticks solely inside Washington, D.C., it's not going to come out right. right. It's, the, listen, 
people may want to experiment with different ways of bringing in people who actually understand how those incentives affect their behaviors. It would be great um, if in the proposed revision to the CFAA Act, which I'm kind of like imagining here, um, there would be more than just one kind of um, required hacker presence at some congressional right. hearing. It's somebody from I Am the Cavalry who's going to show up and exactly. fly the flag. And exactly. do, do you go to the cons? Do you get the chance to, to spread the word there? And what's the receptivity there? Yeah, we try. Um, it's, uh, there, there's, there's, um, there is a bit in this uh, community, and it's, uh, I think, in some ways healthy, a bit of skepticism about the academic research community. Sure. Uh, as being a little bit too theoretical, a little bit disconnected from events on the ground, a little bit disconnected from government, a little bit disconnected from everything they care about. Um, we recognize that there's some truth in that, but part of what we're trying to do is to move the culture of the academic world as well, um, such that it can interface effectively. The things We can do long-term basic research programs mm -hmm. that are really hard to do in industry, frankly, and are really hard to do um, in government. They're really hard to do for a single hacker sitting in the basement. But we actually, you know, we need to be solving the problems that they care about. Right. And I know that sounds self-evident, um, but the only way you get there is by being with the people. And you talked about incoming presidential administration. You have a new short paper out which looks at some 100-day priorities and 1,000-day priorities for the next administration that they can do. Talk about some of what you've proposed for the President-elect Trump and his advisors. Sure. So, I mean, a lot of this has to do precisely with the sort of people circulation. And Steve was alluding to one of what we think is one of the more innovative ideas, which is a cyber incubator. So the idea would be that you bring together people from, you know, the intelligence community, especially take some of their tough problems and they spend some time on the West Coast working with folks who are seconded from some of the top tech companies to work on problems in a classified space for one to two years, and then sort of like DARPA, go back out into where they came from so there's a clear start and end date. That has a number of benefits, one of which is that if you take great technical people and bring them into government, they often lose the ability to stay up to date right. on the technical issues. Um, and that's especially true if you move them all the way to Washington rather than allowing them to stay in the valley. So we think that if you bring those folks together, support them from the beginnings of their careers so that they're interested in engaging in this space, and then allow them to engage with top government uh, folks working on interesting problems, the public service aspect of it will become self-evident. Well, don't they already do this in Northern Virginia where they lock them up in sort of military industrial complex industries where they sign the non-disclosure agreements, they can't go to cons, exactly. they can't publish and do their exactly. own research, their own security research. And so I think it seems like one of the things that people who do this really at a high level is they want the ability to keep learning, yes. to share and spread what they do, even if certain parts of it is proprietary or classified and boxed off. Right. And I think that's been the cultural thing, at least from the people in the Pentagon I know more than anything. Well, when you move out a, in a field that's moving this quickly, if you're not in the flow of the constant innovation sort of cycle that's actually still accelerating, quite frankly, um, your skills are going to get a little bit obsolete and not that right. long period of time. And, um, so that's one of the reasons why we want this thing to be small. Mm -hmm. It's one of the reasons why we think it's really important to have it on the West Coast. Um, and I would say Oakland, California would be our prime <laughs> location. We um, have no interest or bias in that <laughs> selection. <laughs> and I say that quite uh, a little bit, uh, obviously, because uh, parochial interest being at Berkeley, but also because um, it needs to be close to the valley, but not right smack in the middle right. of the valley. Because, not captured by it. Right. We don't want it to be captured. We don't want it to become yet another incubator in Palo Alto or Mountain View with all due respect to those lovely towns in which I spent many, many too, way too many years. Um, it needs to be 
of the valley, but not in the valley. Right. And frankly, um, you know, Betsy said it very well. It's partly a cult. It's a brain circulation thing. It's a team building thing, and it's a cultural thing. Right. I think one of the things that sometimes people forget is that um, technical communities are not just innovating in technologies. They're also innovating in work processes around technology on an ongoing right, basis. Right. Right. So ask me now. You know, what's after agile software development? I don't know. Right. But I know that if I'm not working on the ground with those communities, I'll be the last one to find it. Right. And just to add to that, I mean, so many industries now that were not traditional technology or internet-based industries are now adding internet devices. This is the internet of things growth, right? right? And so more and more companies that weren't engaging in this are going to need to. Right. And so we need to begin to open those chains of conversation now so that when the entire world is essentially producing digital technologies, there's plans of action and understanding of the different ways to engage. And again, that, that's not 2030. That's 20. Mm -hmm. That might be 2018, 2019. We're getting there faster than anybody thought we would. And t two more questions. One big question, which is defense. So, I mostly talk to people who break into thing, break into, <laughs> but then later they become blue as they get older and they yes. learn how to defend networks. But so there are a lot of models about how to defend things. Right, and I, lots of good IT staffs and CISOs think about this all the time. And people talk about active defense, segmentation, hacking back, you know, automated pen testing your systems constantly. Yeah. Defense, if I'm a big Fortune 100 company, is something I can't spend enough money on because I care about my customers' uh, uh, information, my, our personal data, our, you know, not getting doxxed. Talk about the defense problem, especially when you get to IoT, as Betsy yeah. was saying. Uh, well, just to get started on that, I want to highlight one um, way of thinking about that that I think really does need to be kept in mind, um, and it's my NFL analogy. They say, uh, uh, you know, offenses win games and defenses win championships. Right. And I think um, that's true in the cybersecurity world as well. It's an offense-dominant environment, most like the NFL has become a passing league, but it's still the defenses that win the game in right. the end. And so um, I think the challenge, as you know, for many firms has been, how do I know if I'm investing enough, and perhaps even more importantly, how do I know if I'm investing in the right things? Right. It's still the case um, that there are a few firms that are really, really, really good right. because they were born digital and they can get the best human capital. If you want to work in security at Google and you're good, right. you're there. But what about the Ford Motor Companies right. and the you know Seiko Fasteners? And I don't mean to be picking on any particular yeah firm, but the old line, more traditional industrial firms that really had just struggled in the 1990s and the 2000s to deal with the fact that their businesses were going digital and they had to build web pages. Right. Now they have to do the security thing right. as well. Um, one of the things that we think is really interesting in that world, again, sort of doing, having to do less with technology than to do with the kind of changing economic profile of this sector is the rise of managed security service mm -hmm. providers. Um, which creates all sorts of really interesting opportunities uh, to do things in that sort of intermediary space that have to do with insurance, that have to do with pen testing, that have to do with um, all sorts of different risk sharing arrangements. And so, um, look, this field's moving really, really, really fast. Everybody's got to do defense. We can get into a conversation about active defense if you want. Right. Um, and I'd be happy to do that. The one thing I will say again on that is we take the view that um, no moral hazard. The best defense is a good defense. Right, right. Period, full stop. Do, are we going to need to be able to do things in the active defense area? Well, the U.S. government already oh, does. does right. Our private sector actor is going to have to do that for, for us. That's an interesting, that's a really interesting and profound question mark. 
um, we don't. Th we're not religiously opposed to it. Mm -hmm. We think that um, some principles are being developed that might allow for some cabined efforts in very specific circumstances with very precise government control. Um, it, we we do not default to the view that privatized active defense is necessarily destabilizing under all conditions. Mm -hmm. We think that's a really interesting question. It needs modeling. It needs scenario work. It needs some people to um, go, uh, look at it with a really open mind. The alternative is private industry is going to start doing it anyway. And well, there's already some evidence of that. People not just going in networks to surveil and look for the source, but going into to do maybe an additional level of disruption or, or response. And my sense is that they will move into that field whether or not uh, there are congressional hearings or somebody. Sure. But one of the things that an organization like the Council on Foreign Relations, I think, could do very well in a setting like this, not to tell you what to do with your Please. time, um, would be to um, sort of upframe that question a little bit and ask ourselves, again, looking forward a couple of years, um, what kinds of norms around active defense would actually benefit the United States? Let's think of it as a national interest, not a corporate interest. And um, we can we, we sort of talk, like, is the United States better off in a world, for example, where governments are held responsible for attacks that are launched from their territory? Not saying we can get there right away. Right. Um, not saying exactly what it would, would, would take to sort of enforce such a norm, but is that a good thing for the United States or a bad thing for the United States? Government actors, I think, are going to be under quite a lot of time pressure. I'm not sure they're going to have the time to sit back and think about that kind of a question. We love to think about those kinds of questions, right. but we're also doing it um, a little bit distance from the East Coast. And I think problems like that are just ripe for places like the council. So the, lean in. Please. But the default <laughs> the default in the academic and think tank policy community is we're going to reread Thomas Schelling exactly. and try to shoehorn those findings from the Rand Corporation in the 50s right. and 60s into this problem. Well, look, I mean, the, the, the strategy of conflict remains my favorite book ever written. And I can <laughs> actually, I could probably me read for you from memory chapter six right now. I'll, 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 I won't do that. Um, <laughs> please, thank you. <laughs> those, those concepts are useful, but I, I really do think think that the, um, the non-technical community ought to listen to the technical community on this side and start from a blank sheet of paper. Right. Agreed. So last question we ask everybody. Uh, if you were a younger version of yourself or you talked to younger undergrads or starting grad students, what advice do you give people wanting to start in political science, IR, or cybersecurity, or legal fields? What advice do you give to young people who want to succeed? Well, so I'd say don't close off your options too quickly. Um, so many people assume that cybersecurity is a space in which you have to have a PhD in computer science right. to be able to engage. And I think uh, both of us sitting here are very clear examples <laughs> of people who do not have that and yet have creative thinking about policy, about the law, about how companies and governments should interact, and we need those skills too. Right. And that's frankly why we're doing an interdisciplinary degree program rather than a purely technical one, because we believe that so strongly. But especially women and minorities tend to believe that if they don't have those technical skills, they can't get into this space. And I would say it's a really cool and interesting space, and give it a shot. I would add a, a thought, um, again, going back to the nuclear analogy for what it's worth. Um, for those of us who grew up in the, that, that era, we were trying to understand the security challenges of the nuclear weapons establishment. Um, most of what we needed to understand from a technical perspective to be smart about that was classified. Right. And so right. Um, we were actually operating with one and a half hands timed up behind our back. I think in the cybersecurity realm, some of it's classified, but most of it, most of it isn't. Right. So actually, you don't need, not everybody needs to have a PhD in computer science. That's ex Betsy's exactly right. 
but there's a lot of technical knowledge that you can um, amass and become reasonably expert in, and maybe not enough to build systems, right. but enough to understand what other people can and will do. And so that's the responsibility side. I think Betsy said it really, really well. Um, we think this is a super exciting and super sexy field, and we think people should be entering it and getting interested in it as much as building the next app. Um, but there's a lot of knowledge that's out there and available, so take advantage of that knowledge. Learn it and then figure out what's next. So if you want to do policy and academic work, uh, think digital, think cyber. Absolutely right. Beautiful. Well, I want to thank, again, Drs. Weber and Cooper for talking. Check out UC Berkeley Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity. Just Google Berkeley CLTC. You'll find everything they're working on there. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much.